0: This episode has been sponsored by Connor Insurance, an auto owner's insurance company. Hi, this is Abby at Connor Insurance. There have been record amounts of rain all across the country this year. Most damage occurs when water backs up in your drains and basement fixtures. If you have a basement, you need to check the limit your policy provides for water backup. If you aren't sure how to check, just give me a call or visit us at connorins.com. Hi, my name is Ray Hilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Truth at Work, and I am at Northview Church in Carmel, Indiana. Imagine the opportunity to gather with over 1,500 fellow Christ followers and hear from a world-class lineup of speakers. This annual conference, now in its eighth year, features some of the most amazing Christian business and marketplace leaders that we bring together to communicate best practices on living out your faith in the marketplace. If you're wrestling through these issues of the integration of your faith, work, and life, or if you simply wanna find more meaning, purpose, and direction to your daily work and career, this is an event you don't wanna miss. That's the Truth at Work Conference, Friday, November 8th. Check out the website, and we'll see you there. And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith, on this week's show, race it's down with Brad Hewitt, former CEO of Thriving Financial.
1: When I get discouraged, when things don't go right, I keep going back to how big of a deal is this? Can I just create that attitude of gratitude that seems to transform circumstances and situations? If my attitude becomes one of gratefulness and joy, pretty soon those problems and those issues change and that next step becomes obvious.
0: Hello everyone, this is Ray Hilbert. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back to another edition of the program where we love to bridge the intersection of faith, leadership, and business in the marketplace. I get the incredible privilege of traveling the country and interviewing the most amazing Christ followers who are influencing the marketplace, business owners, CEOs, high-capacity, high-profile leaders. We learn their stories, we learn uh, what they've been through, their victories, their failures, but most importantly, how their faith in Jesus shapes their life and leadership. I am in the beautiful Twin Cities of many Minneapolis-St. Paul in the great state of Minnesota. And I have the amazing privilege today to interview Brad Hewitt. Uh, we're going to learn all about Brad, but um, uh, I don't like to introduce people by what they've been known for, so I'm just going to have to say this, but then we're going to get on to what he's doing now. But until recently, Brad was the CEO of Thrivent Financial here in the Twin Cities area, and he is soon to be the chair of of Habitat for Humanity International. We're going to learn more about that ministry. We're going to learn more about other things that he's involved with here in the Minneapolis area, and we are going to hear an amazing man of God. Brad, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you and looking forward to a fun conversation. We're going to have a good time. And Brad, we had a chance to meet uh, a few months ago. You spoke at our annual Truth at Work conference, and you have a real passion about sharing on financial generosity and stewardship, and I'd love to talk more about that. But give our audience just a little bit of your background, kind of your career history. We'll talk about your faith in a few moments, but help us understand kind of your business background.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I grew up right here in the Twin Cities in what would be I would describe it as kind of the stereotypic 1950s, 60s family. My dad got back from World War II. Mom was working then. She stayed at home and uh, regular church goer. And that. That was a just a wonderful environment. and you know I feel very blessed to have had that kind of of time growing up. And uh, active in my church from from the beginning and, as I grew up, I I always thought maybe I should go into the ministry, but I I concluded at about when I was in high school that you'd actually need the gift of mercy to be a pastor, <laughs> and I wasn't sure I had that gift. <laughs> so so I decided to go into business, which seemed like a better choice at that point. And 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 uh, I've been working on that mercy gift ever since. But that was that was kind of the the path in life as I was thinking about what I was going to do. And uh, went to college, got a degree in math and economics, and, and was recruited to be an actuary out of college. And I took the personality Profile test, and basically, there's flashing lights. Is like, don't be an actuary, don't be an <laughs> actuary. You know? uh, but that's what I started off because it was that's what I had done, and and uh, got into the business world with a little technical background. I've had uh, a wide variety. I really think of my career path as being one of the most eclectic. So I've been in big old businesses. I've been in startup companies. I've been in I went to work as in the ministry as an I would call it an administrator in the church body. And then as you said, ended up at Thrive and Financial, which was this wonderful blend of ministry and business. Yeah. yeah. And just recently retired as a CEO there. So I feel very blessed to have had lots of different experiences. Uh,
0: over my career. Yeah. And I want to touch base just on the most recent career stop there at Thrive It. So Thrive It Financial is uh, the country's largest fraternal organization, Fortune 300 company and financial advisory services and products, right? That's correct. Um, Just in terms of like number of employees or team members, whatever the right, how What's the size and scope of Thriving because I'm going to come yeah,
1: I mean, we had you know and some of its independent contractors through sure. the financial advisors and everything but if you looked at the corporate offices the the financial advisors and their staff, it was between five and six thousand people across across the u s and and as a fraternal benefits society, we were only in the u s so we had affiliate organizations
0: in other countries, but each country really was separate in that stage. One of the things that I personally love about this program here at Bottom Line Faith is I get to ask ask questions. Not everybody gets the chance to sit down one-on-one with the CEO of a Fortune 300 firm. And maybe they would see them on television or in the news or something like that. But why don't you help us understand what is daily life like for someone in that role? Well, you know, it's, it, I get to ask
1: that question a lot when, mm-hmm. when people do want it because they're, they're kind of curious, What what is it like to be the CEO? And my honest answer is, is once you become the CEO, you, you really don't have a job anymore because your job is really to make sure that other people are doing their job. And it's, a, it's really, really pouring yourself into other people and helping them succeed. And I see that a little bit in in every role that you have whenever you're in a in a role where you have people working for you that's mm-hmm. partly your role but usually then you're responsible for something too you know yes. you're, you're the yeah. accountant or you're, you're the salesperson or you're you know once you become CEO you're kind of accountable for everything and so yeah. i think that's part of it and I, then we were talking a little bit before i i really do think the the role of the CEO this this may sound funny i i would s- spend at least an hour a day where I would put no meetings on my calendar just to try to make sure I was spending enough time thinking about what the next likely things would be. It's really trying to discern. And I would literally take that time as a Sabbath time during my day to pray, to think about how in the world are we going to navigate This big company, because I always felt the responsibility of all 6,000 people were my responsibility to make the wise next step. And God tells us that He's a lamp to our feet. He doesn't give you the whole thing, you know. <laughs> you just have to see that lamp is that what's that next step? Yes. And sometimes you have to wait for God to show you what that next step is. And then being able to think about if that next step is easy or hard, what is it gonna take culturally or mm-hmm. people wise to take that next step? So it sounds like a funny answer, but that was really I, I thought that was in some ways my most important time.
0: That's fantastic. And so when you would have a major decision, Mm -hmm. walk us through how you make major decision in that leadership, that kind of capacity, with that kind of stewardship, that kind of, not authority per se, but responsibility. What was that like?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I had a a saying in my desk before I became CEO. It said, in God we trust, everyone else bring data. (laughs) (laughs) So I really do think you start with what are the facts, and including the brutal facts? And Jim Collins uses that. You know, you have to really work at the brutal facts. One of the things you quickly figure out as a CEO is no one's going to share you with the the brutal facts with you unless you really dig and ask for it. In fact, there's a I don't want to call it a conspiracy, but there's a human <laughs> human nature to hide the brutal facts. Yeah, yeah. So part of making a hard decision is really spending times understanding context so that's the data and the context and really where are we then the second piece that i would always go to and what's our purpose and mission and that sounds really funny because you think my gosh well everybody knows what the mission is and yeah but almost always what i found when we were going to make a big decision the mission if you didn't bring up what our purpose and mission and and whole piece was that we would almost always take a step that may be close but not aligned with that, and so the you know the Andy Stanley you know mission leaks, yes, <laughs> you know, right? It right, does, right? right. And Absolutely. and he's right on, and and so so you know get the brutal facts. What's the mission? And then and then honestly, what we would do is we would have meetings where we would we would debate options, and I would almost always in those meetings with you know, my trusted staff have to remind them that this isn't a democracy. We're, we're not taking a vote. It isn't. This isn't a, a, a system where we're going to debate and then take a vote. If we could all get to agreement and it seemed like the next step was obvious, we'd just do it. Yeah. If it wasn't, usually it was pretty well divided 50-50 and sometimes we would go back and, and keep trying to figure out, is there something we're missing? If not, at some point we would just say, okay, we have to pick one option or another and when you're in that role of authority, yeah. that yeah. is your job. Is that somebody at some point the buck stops with the person who has to make the decision? And Correct. and yeah. I think sometimes when people want to have this vote, it's to share the blame uh, instead of just saying, you know what, I'm going to make this decision. It's my decision. If it fails, it's me. It's not anybody else. Yeah. You know, we had
0: the plenty of debate. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful, I think, just to kind of let people peek inside what life is like for the CEO of a large corporation. And so as you look back and think back over the course of your career, whether it's at Thrivent Financial or somewhere else, what was maybe the most difficult decision that you had to make, and how did your faith help you get through that? Does does anything come to mind? Yeah. Usually
1: it's people issues, and this one didn't happen to be a a people issue. It was a business acquisition situation. So I was working, we'd been at a startup, and it, it had boomed, it had grown like mad. It had spun off a whole bunch of other startups, and I'd become the CEO of one of the other startup organizations. And kind of in that same strategy piece, it was getting clearer and clearer that we needed to separate that business because most of our customers were in competition with our parent company. Okay. And so I went to the went to the CEO of the parent company and said, here's the strategy. I think we need to sell this business. I think we could get this, this dollar amount for it. And he's like, no way are you ever going to get that much money. And so we ended up getting actually twice as much as we both <laughs> thought. But what was really interesting in that process is, It was really clear to me that I was gonna be moving from the parent company to the other company. And at what point did my responsibility to the parent company or the buying company change?
0: Almost Almost a conflict conflict of interest. It was almost and,
1: and, and and because of the data and you know, how do you do this? And the new company was buying it for a very high multiple. And I knew I was gonna be responsible for delivering value at that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, on the other hand, my job was to get the maximum value for the for the parent company of where I was working. And that sounds like a simple thing, but it was a very complex. And so my faith, as you start, one is I prayed about it a lot, but I concluded that. My job was to make sure that everybody made the wisest decision they could and the best way to do that was to provide extreme transparency to everyone. So yeah, yeah. it was we're not going to try to, you know, manipulate. We're going to really use transparency and an open book policy as much as possible. And it turned out great. I mean, it was—it ended up being really hard to deliver on the value afterwards, but we did it, and it turned out to be really good for the, for the parent company.
0: I love that. That's a great example. I have a friend of mine who used to be a circuit judge, and I asked him one time, I said, how do you know if you were a great judge in a case? And he says, when both parties walked away unhappy with me. Then I knew I was fair. Right. And so as I was listening to your story, you had equal concerns for both parties to, not to make them unhappy, but to make them happy and to bring value. Right. So your faith guided you through that. So from that point forward, how did that lesson impact your future decision-making? Talk about transparency, maybe. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I really do think it's... What I concluded was that in circumstances where you have these competing parties. Yeah, One one of the things- Which
0: is not all all that unusual. Which is
1: pretty common. Yeah, Again, back to the decision process is putting all the facts on the table and letting everybody see what the facts were. So I've found that to be just an incredibly valuable thing to do in almost all circumstances. And in a lot of ways, I think the the faith, I'm going to say something that you, you will probably find surprising is I actually don't think- We're actually called to be leaders. I actually don't think even leadership is an interestingly enough a biblical idea. What Jesus called us to be is followers, Mm -hmm. and what I discovered through through that process is you're always a follower. Jesus was a follower of the (laughs) Father. You know, you know, the disciples were followers of Jesus. You know that there's a there's a followership belief and system in Scripture, and what I have found in that that I I think has served me well in every role I've been in is my job is to be an awesome follower. When I look for people, when I find people who are awesome followers, they're often the best leaders too. And I find that people who want to be leaders usually aren't very good followers and they turn out to be not very good leaders. (laughs) So... It's, um, I love that. it's, yeah, yeah. uh, so it's the, one of those paradoxes, exactly. isn't it? <laughs> it is, a, it's, it is absolutely a paradox. And the reality is of uh, being a good follower isn't always just doing what your boss says. Sometimes it's telling your boss, no, you're not right. Cause you're being, trying to be a good follower. So it's, it's not what people think of followership is is, is this yeah just be doing not not loyalty not at all.
0: Right. right. It's, it's transparency, transparency it's authenticity. It's, it's, it's yeah.
1: challenging when you need to. It's it's following through when you sometimes you don't agree, but they're the boss and they've made their decision. And so you you get on board and you you're positive. Huh. So um, that that's I think that I was trying to be a good follower in, in both cases. And I'd say that served me better than almost anything else I can think of.
0: That's fantastic. Our mutual friend, Russ Crossan, talks a lot about this. You know, from Ronald Blue Trust. He's got a lot about followership. I love that. And I think that in today's world, we have so much about leadership. And we talk about that here, of course but it is followership mm-hmm. that makes the difference.
1: Well, and the reality is I, I, I've i actually changed my language because obviously you need good leaders. Leader, leadership's really important. I, it isn't the, the point that leadership isn't important, but what I observe is, is that I think we use leadership to mean a whole bunch of different things. So I've been using, you know, how do I use authority in a godly way? Because oftentimes that's what we're actually talking about when we talk about authority Or how do I use economics in a godly way as I think about paying, you know, a a lot of times if you're the boss, you're the one who's in charge of the economics and talking about data and logic and all of that. A lot of times the leader is the person who's trying to create the logic system or the framework of things. And I think all of those ethical systems are really important, but at the end of the day, I don't think any of those are transformational as much as this idea of you know, what Jesus talked about being poured out, this
0: sacrifice, this followership, this generosity that has to flow from the person who's in charge. Yeah, actually, as I'm listening, it triggers a, a question for me. Brad, a lot of our audience here at Bottom Line Faith, these are Christ followers, of course, but they're business owners, they're running businesses, leading departments and organizations. What tips or advice could you give or counsel? Could you give to train them or help them on how to help their folks be good followers?
1: Right. It's interesting how little support systems there are for that. I mean, we try to gravitate people.
0: Well, we equate followership to negative, like you're weak and you just can't do it. Right, so
1: my my answer is one is read the the New Testament because it's Jesus and and the (laughs) followers, all the every story about the disciples and they weren't exactly the best
0: employees. That's a great start, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) New Testament. (laughs) Let's bring up the Bible here, (laughs) bottom line faith, okay. (laughs)
1: But but the other thing, uh, quite honestly, uh, like most things in life, modeling good followership is the best way to create good followers. And I think the second thing is is calling out when somebody isn't being a good follower, when somebody's just a yes person. If you're not helping me find the brutal facts, you're not being a good follower because what you're doing is, is you're creating a system where I could make a bad decision. And yeah. I can't afford to make many bad decisions in my business before bad things start to happen. So I really do think looking at Christ's example, who was training people to be disciples, which is followers, I think it's modeling that same behavior and then calling it out. And I'd probably say last, if I was to be perfectly honest, is rewarding people who were the good followers, not necessarily—because I think a lot of our reward systems are for people who— Kind of take initiative and yeah, self aggrandize yeah. and all of that. Those are usually not the best followers. Yeah, and yeah. so that would be examine reward systems. And I don't mean money
0: rewards as much as I mean
1: acknowledgement, acknowledgement and, and praise. And,
0: right. And, right. So the three things to be a great follower: bring the real facts. Yeah. I mean, let's bring them. You need mm-hmm. them. them. Speak reality. Call things out. Be transparent and authentic in your communication. And then allow for the reward system and acknowledgments there, that's though. right Everybody catch those Yep, those those are great that's great that's really good I, i'm not sure in all the conversations i've had here at bottom Line faith we've talked much about that so that's a great unique twist or a unique focus on that i, I appreciate that so we've talked about your career right. we've talked about some of the lessons learned and things over the past and your role as a ceo Let's talk about what's got you excited now. What's what's life look like for for Brad? Sure. Well, you know, like I don't really believe in the
1: idea of retirement. I knew when I took the role of CEO at Thrivent, we had kind of a seven to ten year timeline because they want to promote from within, and the reality is the CEO is the biggest roadblock in any company. You know, if you want to promote from within, so I kind of knew that uh, intellectually. You know, emotionally, it's it's a little harder when you get to that. but I, I do a lot of volunteer work. So what I decided to do after I retired as CEO is, I decided to volunteer with one-on-one counseling with with guys coming out of prison or drug treatment, because you know at some level as a CEO you're dealing with big systems, and I just wanted to do something that was one-on-one with people, that and, and that's been just a real joy. In fact, with one of the guys I just. Just got his drive. He was 38 years old and just got re got his driver's license after two felonies and everything, mm-hmm. and has turned his life around after he came to know the Lord. So I've been doing that, but I've also stayed on on the Habitat for Humanity board, and as you said, I just got elected chair that will start at our next meeting and. And I've been chair of something called the Itasca Project in the Twin Cities, which has gotten a lot of press as being the place where you can bring a whole community together to have honest conversation about how to make your region more competitive, better, and frankly thriving for all. And that's been a a real joy. I think on the side of stewardship, because I spend a lot of time investing in stewardship and personal stewardship, I have a really good business idea that I'm Tempted to start a business around, and so we met with a guy uh, yesterday, and we started to kind of throw that idea out. But the other thing is, is just what's what's the holy discontent right now for me? And quite honestly, it's the business, the business world, especially the Christian business world. As I was getting more and more engaged with that at, at Thrivent, has something that's bothering me. And it's, it's this somewhat idea is we can do whatever we want and make as much money as we want as long as we tithe. And this whole idea of the economic system in the Old Testament being gleaning and tithing and jubilee and all the, the systems there, it seems to me that the business people are the ones who are going to have to keep capitalism healthy. And part of that is, is by making sure you pay people a fair wage. And, and I think the Christian community could lead that in a way that, that others can't for reasons that are biblical principles. And, but it, it's just one of those pieces where, so at Thrivent, we decided we would glean, and the way we would glean is even though we could pay people minimum wage, we would pay them a living wage because that was just like not plowing yeah. to the edge of your field. And it gave people dignity and work and everything. And, of course, what you find out is if you pay people, well, they don't turn over. They're really happy. They they feel really honored to work for you, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. Yes, you yeah. know, all the good things started to happen. So I, that's just one of those holy discontents that I, I haven't really done a lot about that right now. But that's that's kind of... Rummaging around
0: somewhere uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> in, yeah, in yeah. the in yeah. play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, let, let, I, I'd like to go back because I, I don't want to gloss over the Atasca project sure. that you, you spoke of. And so we're obviously living in, here in the United States, a very contentious time. Right. Political parties drawing their hard lines left, hard line right. And it just seems like nothing's getting done, at least things that could be getting right. done, other than pointing fingers and yelling and screaming at each other. But the Itasca Project's something different, and I think there's some great lessons that we can take from this. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that, what kinds of things it does here in the community, and what lessons can we learn from that approach? Sure, so Itasca is the lake that's the headwaters of the Mississippi.
1: And so the idea, it was kind of a twofold reason for naming it is, a lot of the business community in the Twin Cities would go up there, and they would kind of decide what things needed to be improved in the in the cities, and they would come back and use corporate resources to make the Twin Cities a better place. And it was that was the place where the original pledge of giving, you know, five or ten percent of profits to the, back to the community came from. That there's there's a whole series of things that have come out of it. It's been around for. 20 ish plus years, more than that. It's actually probably been around for, uh, at least the spirit of Itasca has been around for much longer than that. But the Itasca project is really creating, I would describe it as a round table where business is business led, fact based, but we deal with the problems of society that usually have long term complex solutions that almost always require the government, business, and the not-for-profit social service sector to solve. So whether it's transportation or housing or park systems or living wages or retirement savings, Mm -hmm. which was one Mm -hmm. of the things that we worked on, and it tackles the bigger issues in a way that allows the business people, in, in essence, with fact base to set the table but invite everybody to the table. And because it has no political sides, it doesn't get politicized we also don't lobby it's interesting we we always get asked to lobby mm-hmm. and what we've said is is we're going to provide the people and the resources to businesses government whoever if they want the facts and they want but we're not going to try to lobby positions and so by kind of staying out of the lobbying business and right. really staying in the what are the solutions that work And we were joking about it before. The interesting thing is, is it has no bylaws. It has no rules. It's a, if you don't volunteer, if somebody doesn't volunteer to to do it, it doesn't get done. That's how it stays prioritized and how things get done. Yeah. If only we could run a nation that way, right?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe even a company. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but we're actually I'm, I'm actually helping. There's a number of other cities now that have started. So Orange County's starting one. There's one in Western Michigan. There's a number of other cities and states that are trying to do something similar and yeah. it, and it really is a a great way for I would say the community to rally and take personal responsibility for their own issues yeah. and not wait
0: for somebody else to do it. Yeah, that's fantastic. As I'm sitting here, Brad, and we're having this conversation, I, I want to just throw out a perception. You tell me if I hit the bullseye or if I'm off. You, you said very early on, you, you're you headed down in career in actuary, right? Mm-hmm. And then you took these tests and you got these flashing red lights, said no. But actuary, it's all about data, right? Yeah. right? But so many things that I've heard from you today is you're a fact-based leader and so you took the essence of that but you've applied it to problem solving right did i is
1: that? yeah i think that's right I, I think i think the reason it said don't be an actuary is because it's i'm never satisfied with the data yes. yes the data is there to do something with to, to accomplish something to make something's life better there, you there go. are people who love the research and just just do the research. Yeah. And for me, the research is really important, but necessary, but insufficient.
0: It's, it's a tool, tool for something it, to be to, solved. To
1: serve yeah. our yeah. community, I serve our it. customers, serve somebody else yeah. with yeah. in a better and better way. And I think that's probably why it flashed, don't don't just be the researcher, <laughs> do
0: something else. Do something with it. Be, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, Brad, we're, we're getting to the last kind of section. Uh, our regular listeners know that I like to kind of end the, the conversations and like, I just call it this kind of advice mm-hmm. and insights category or column, if you will. So a couple of questions that I'd like to ask. If you had a chance to sit down with a 20-year-old Brad Hewitt, how would you advise him?
1: You know, I, honestly, I can't say that I've planned anything in my career. Honestly, what I would say is is keep just following when the Lord leads you to do something different. Just keep doing what you've been doing because that's been kind of my model, and, yeah. and I didn't have grand plans. I, I had no plan to be a CEO and I've now been one three times. <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah, just yeah. So I, I'm not sure I would do anything different or any, I think the advice I would I would probably give early on as what I said before
0: is learn how to be a better follower. Yeah. Fantastic. And so if someone's listening right now and they've just really enjoyed this conversation, but yet maybe they're struggling, mm-hmm. you know, they're discouraged right now and maybe they don't see you, you talked about that light unto our feet, a lamp mm-hmm. unto our pen, that, that next step. They just are blinded right now or they just can't see the next step. What word of encouragement would you have for that leader right now who's just like, I don't know what to do next? Well, one is pray. And oftentimes the Lord will reveal
1: that next step. I mean, I, I think that whole idea of the lamp to your feet is such a wonderful, for me, it's been a wonderful reminder is yeah. usually when I get into that circumstance, it's I want the light to the next five years, not, not the next step. Yeah. But, you know, part of it for me has always been when I get discouraged, when things don't go right, I keep going back to how big of a deal is this? And can I just, can I just love and be in service to what I'm doing now and create that attitude of of gratitude that seems to transform circumstances and situations so almost always if my attitude becomes one of gratefulness and and joy pretty soon those problems and those issues change and
0: th- that next step becomes obvious but that's hard it is hard i love that just to have that attitude of gratitude and so it's going to transition then into my last question our regular listeners they Probably getting tired of hearing Ray talk about the 423 question. But the last question that I ask every conversation, Brad, is based out of Proverbs 423, mm-hmm. where Solomon writes these words He says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows all of life. Right. So, what would be the one above all else piece of advice? that you'd like to end our conversation on today? So one of the ways
1: I guard my heart is and kind of a, a verse that I've had that's been special to me my, my whole life, and it's you know it's the great requirement, which is in Micah 6.8. It's love, mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with God. That's what the Lord requires. And what's fascinating to me about that b- verse is that love, as you think of the heart and, and love, love sometimes looks like mercy— and sometimes looks like justice. Mm-hmm. And it takes real discernment. And we know this with my kids or with any uh, my employees, anybody. Yeah. Trying to guard my heart to say what's the most loving thing that I could do for this person. Sometimes it's going to be just to let them off the hook, and sometimes it's going to be to hold hold the law, and to remember as you're making those decisions, just be humble before God, because you can't see into their heart, you can't see into their mind, and choose wisely as wisely as you can. And to me, that's the the way I think about how do you then do the the great commandment of, of loving one. another.
0: That's fantastic. It reminds me, Paul talks about the church in Corinth. He says, shall I come at you with a love or with a whip? We're going to deal with it, but do I do it soft or do I do it It, hard? It's hard. That's That's the discernment discernment part. Brad, thanks for this conversation today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll allow me to come back and we can talk more. I would love to. Thanks. Well, folks, another just amazing, fast, fast conversation here at Bottom Line Faith. So we've heard today from Brad Hewitt, a man that has faithfully followed God, had his ups, had his downs, but has really, really tried to make a difference in the world by gathering facts, by being a great follower, and encouraging others to do the same. That's what we're about here at Bottom Line Faith is to encourage you as a Christ follower in leadership to be all that God has called you to be each day in the marketplace. So until next time, that is my encouragement to you. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith, Ray Hilbert, saying so long, and we'll see you next time. Bottom Line Faith is brought to you by Truth at Work. If you'd like to hear about new episodes or listen to past episodes, visit us online at bottomlinefaith.org. You can also subscribe to the show through Google Play and iTunes.
1: Shepard has been serving the children of Indianapolis and helping families for 34 years. We work to break the cycle of poverty on the near east side of Indianapolis because we love the children in our neighborhood. We are privileged to watch our neighbors grow physically, emotionally, spiritually, and academically through the relationships we build every day. Partnered with Shepherd by donating thirty-four dollars to celebrate thirty-four years. Visit shepherdcommunityorg BLF to join us.